If you would stand for the reading of God's word, we'll be in Romans chapter 7, and we're going to start in verse 14 for today. And I will warn you, it might be easier for you just to listen, because it, the, the language is tricky, but here we go. Paul writes, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate to do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me. Waging war against the law in my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so then, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. This is the word of God. Oh, it did. Well, here we go. All right, it's going to get sweaty now. I've got a microphone. Here we go. What's happening in these verses in, in Romans? We pick up in verse 14, but in Romans 7, 1 through 13, there's a discussion. Paul is having a discussion about the role of the law and its current status in the life of specifically, probably speaking, to the Jewish Christians. These uh, Jewish followers of Jesus who have grown up with a certain relationship with God. Um, where the primary way of accessing God was through the law, these 613 kind of rules and regulations and systems that have been set up in the Old Testament, 603 plus the Ten Commandments. And so now Jesus has come, and we've heard, and we've been in Romans for a while now, where we hear Paul speaking about this kind of new way, the reality of Jesus and what that means for the community of faith. And so Paul in chapter 7 is addressing this discussion about what is the role of the law. And he speaks earlier um, about uh, the, the, the law being fulfilled, and we'll talk that in a moment. In verse 14, it says, we know that the law is spiritual, right? This context of discussion about in light of Christ, there's been a major shift. That Paul is saying, the followers of Jesus, that we are free from the obligation of the law. He uses another illustration. Tim preached last week and talked about the illustration of slavery, in chapter 7, we have a different illustration. Paul uses the illustration of marriage. It's not a teaching about marriage, more of an illustration of the shift that is happening for the followers of Jesus. And he says this, he goes, uh, you are obligated to your spouse until one of you dies. And at the time of death, the obligation, the commitment is finished. Why right? we say this at weddings even now, until death do us part, that there's been something that has happened in the death of Jesus Christ, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, 
that has abolished the old way of connecting to God primarily through the law, through the, through the rules, through the systems that were set up. So he uses this marriage illustration. Death stops the commitment, stops the obligation. And this is the old way of faith. And now that Jesus has come and died and been risen from the dead, there's a new way. But lest those who are listening to Paul think that the law then is sinful, the law is bad, that Jesus has come and now we don't need to worry about any of that stuff. That's where we find in verse 14 where he says, we know that the law is spiritual, that the law still has a impact. It still has a role to play in our life. In fact, Paul says, and we read in verse 13, that the law itself is holy and righteous and good. So the conclusion here is that the law itself is not sinful, and because of Jesus, we are not to just throw away the law and not look at this way of living that God is very specific about. The way we're to relate with God, the way we're to relate with one another, the way we're supposed to, even what we did now by giving of our offerings, this way of living, these rhythms of life that God gives to the people through the law, through the Old Testament, saying, this is how I want you to connect with me, and this is how I want you to live in the world that I have created. In fact, the law has a role to play, and that role is that we know how we're living And we know the role of sin and our selfishness in light of the law. And so although it's been fulfilled in Jesus, the law itself is not sinful, but through the law, sin is made known. Stick with me. We're going to get practical in a moment. Paul is telling us this, that through Jesus, our standing and our status has been changed. That followers of Jesus are free from the old way that we are invited into a new way of being in relationship with God, not one primarily, primarily through a bunch of do's and don'ts and sacrifices, but most importantly and primarily through the sacrifice of the one and only Jesus Christ. We have a new title, and followers of Jesus have a new positional reality in, in terms of our relationship with God. We have a new positional reality. So let's call that first reality the promise. That the fulfillment of the law has happened in Jesus. In fact, when Jesus dies on that cross, we read in Matthew 27, when he breathes his last breath, that in the temple, the veil was torn in half. Much more than even a symbolic act of of describing that this old way of connecting to God has been shattered, has been torn And that Jesus has fulfilled all that's been promised in the Old Testament. And now there is a new reality. There is a new way. In verse 6 of chapter 7, it says that we have now been released from the law so that we can serve in the Spirit. We'll get to that in a moment. So we now have a new reality in 2 Corinthians. And it's all over the New Testament. If you're familiar with these verses, 2 Corinthians 5, we we hear this language that when we follow Jesus, we become new creations. The old is gone. The new has come. In Colossians 3, we hear about this idea of a new self over our old self. In Galatians 5, we, we see that we are now led by the Spirit, not by the law. In Romans 6, Pastor Chuck preached before Easter about this idea that we've been crucified We've been crucified, that we have died with Christ, and we've been risen with Christ. Galatians 2, 
We have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who lives, but Christ lives in me. All of this to say that the promise for those of us who follow Jesus is that we have a new positional standing with God. We are new people. And we are no longer bound to the rules and regulations of relating to the living God in that way, but we are free and we are new and we are redeemed and we are made new. We are something new. The old is gone and the new has come. Yet Paul continues in chapter 7, not just to continue to speak about this new identity and this new reality for those of us who follow Jesus, Paul goes on to speak about another reality. That although we have a positional reality, that we are now uh, new people, new creations, that we have been set free from the obligation of a, of, a, of, a, of a life where we have to count and account for every jot and tittle, the truth of that is in context of also this other reality. And we'll call this reality the process, the process of life, the process of discipleship, the process of being a Christian. And that reality was where we get a whole bunch of the same idea over and over again differently when Paul says things like, the things I want to do, I don't do. In fact, I do the things I'm not supposed to do. This conflict, this reality that at one moment we are, um, we've been purchased, we've been redeemed, we have a, a new identity, but the reality is that we struggle to live in that identity, that there's a process. And Paul specifically speaks to the struggle as being one of sin, and he uses the language of our flesh. Martin Luther, the great reformer, says this. He says that, so for the Christian, we are simultaneously justified and sinful at the same time. So followers of Jesus, Christians... We're two things at the same time. We're both enduringly sinful and completely forgiven and justified by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That is the Christian life. There's great controversy in these words Paul speaks. There are some who read these words and think, Paul's been on a bit of a run with illustrations, right? So he, is, uh, he can't be speaking about himself. I mean, this is Paul, like Paul Paul, Right? Who, who He was kind of the expert. He was the guy writing the letters. He, we've got a lot of Paul's work here. So Paul, he's been speaking about slavery. He's been using marriage. And so he's just using a generic illustration about the struggle that really what he's talking about are people who don't know Jesus. Right? And there'll be other people who say, Paul, Paul must be looking back, even if he is talking about his own life, he's looking back to his life before he met Jesus. Surely Paul can't be talking about this idea of being sinful and having a fleshly life because he's got this new identity in Jesus that he has been speaking about over and over and over again in Romans. So for those that say it can't be Paul, for those that say it must be Paul reflecting on his life before he decided to follow Jesus, I say, don't be fooled. Paul is speaking about his current reality. That Paul himself is both speaking about the justification and freedom that comes from following Jesus and the reality that as a sinful human being living on this earth, that there is a struggle, that there is a hard reality of following God. 
They who look at Paul and say it can't be him, and we as people, we always fall for this. We love the idea of the Christian superhero. We love the idea in our minds. It brings us some level of peace to think that there are going to be those people who follow Jesus so, so well, so cleanly, so perfectly, that they actually stop, the temptation stops for them. When you work at Lake Avenue Church, we started something a couple of years ago. When you get hired and you, you go through your orientation and you figure out how to do the time card and all the things, you, you have a 15-minute meeting with me. And in that 15-minute meeting, we talk about a few things. But one of the things I say to everybody who ever steps foot on the staff of Lake Avenue Church is something like this. I just want you to know you're probably going to be disappointed in us at some point. If you've never worked at a church before, it might conjure up some ideas that we, we go around and we wear halos and robes and sing one another and we're smiling all the time and we, we never fight and we never disagree. We, we never overlook somebody as we're walking down the hall. I say, I just want to get you ready. I'm not sure what you're prepared for, but um, Greg's going to have a bad day. It's really only Greg. You should know that. Oh, I'm going to have a bad day. I'm going to be walking down the hallway and I'm going to be thinking I got to go get something out of my mailbox and I'm not even going to look you in the eye and you're going to wonder if something happened there. We're human beings. The struggle is very real. And Paul's struggle is an illustration and it's a helpful reality that there is no Christian superhero. That there is a tension for those of us who follow Jesus. And the tension is this, is that we are simultaneously forgiven and free and justified. And our positional standing with God has been changed through the power and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And yet we are still sinful human beings. Led by our flesh. That is the tension. And when Paul writes these words in Romans 7, he is saying, don't live in denial. Celebrate the reality of your new positional standing and understand the experiential reality of being human. That sin exists and the struggle is real and it will be real your whole life. We are simultaneously justified and sinful at the same time. Brothers and sisters, that's true for you and for me. When you and I look for titles this week of how different pastors titled these verses in their sermons, and I would say 90% of them use language about the battle and the war. And it's just true. This is the tension. This is the reality of being a disciple. You and I cannot wait out sin and wait out our flesh. We don't get the opportunity to go, well, I've been a Christian for 40 years, and so that means somehow I don't have any more temptation in this life. Following Jesus doesn't work that way. There's no magic potion. There's nothing. You don't, you don't graduate out. You can't test out our flesh as long as we are alive is a powerful reality in our life. 1 John, we love 1 John chapter 9, I mean uh, verse 9. Listen to what surrounds very familiar verse for us. 1 John chapter 1, starting in verse 8 through 10. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Verse 10. 
If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not true in us. If we claim we have not sinned, we make God out to be a liar. I don't want this to be a downer message. In fact, chapter 8 in Romans is a whole bunch of hope and a whole bunch of gift. It's the Holy Spirit, and Greg's going to preach on that next week. But for this week, when we think about the tension, the reality that we have this promise of a new identity, but yet the daily living is one of great struggle for you and I, how might we be encouraged this morning? How, what might God have to say to you and me about just even this week? And so I've got, as any good pastor, I've got three things for you. Number one. Do not be deceived. comes right out of 1 John. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Lake Avenue Church, Jeff Matisich, we're not that good. Don't deceive yourself. We are not immune from temptation. We are not immune that the spiritual life isn't like your professional life. You don't advance up. You don't resume out. You can only lie to yourself and deceive yourself that somehow you are something you're not. There's a rhythm to this kind of living, right? Aren't we just ready for the next? What's the next person who we're going to find out? Which, which church leader or spiritual leader or mega church pastor? Where, when's it going to hit the news that they had a moral failure and they're out? This is a rhythm for us of, of leaders and people who deceive themselves that somewhere along the line that they, they thought, what I'm selling, I don't need to purchase anymore for myself, that I've, I've got the product, I've checked that box, I've, I've figured out what it means to be spiritual. Friends, do not be deceived. You and I need to have a posture of humility and confession all the time. One of the best moments that happened in the life of this church this year was when Pastor was preaching and Denny Repco came up here and shared his story and shared with vulnerability and honesty about the struggles in his life. If you don't know Denny Repco, for me, the order kind of goes Trinity and then Denny Repco. <laughs> it was the most freeing, most beautiful moment we've had in this church of honesty and vulnerability because if Denny Repco can admit he's still trying to figure out how to follow Jesus, and not be led by the sinful nature. Boy, there's hope for all of us. I think we are often called hypocrites when we don't acknowledge the sin inside of us. Because we are hypocrites. It's part of the gig. We live in the tension. Real hypocrisy is when we deny that we're sinful people. And we deny that the flesh has a reality on us. So don't be deceived. Second, don't be surprised. I love that our students are here. I love talking to high school students and say, you should never be surprised at what your body wants to do. You should never be surprised that if you find yourself in certain situations that your flesh is going to tell you to do something that you know you probably shouldn't be doing. So you should never be surprised that your body is, is built and wired and the flesh is so strong that given the opportunity and choice and the right set of circumstances that we will follow our flesh all the time. Don't be surprised that when you get on the computer at 11 o'clock at night and everybody else is asleep in the home, that you're probably going to be tempted to go to some websites that you shouldn't go to. 
Don't be surprised that given the right set of circumstances, if you have an ability to make a choice that advances yourself at the cost of someone else, you will choose yourself. The flesh is strong, brothers and sisters. You should never be surprised at the impact and the draw of sin in your life and in this world. And sin at its core is designed to destroy you and to destroy the way you look at the people around you. It's divisive. It's dangerous. It it is so self-serving. It makes you the most important thing in the world and that everybody else around you looks for conspiracy, looks for controversy, looks for a way to gossip, looks for a way to advance self over others. Do not be surprised at what sin does. It wants to destroy you and others through the lens of pleasure and joy and justification. And finally, don't be deceived, don't be surprised. And I think we need to be the kind of people who admit our plans. Because the truth of the matter is that for many of us, we have a plan to sin already scheduled in our phone right now. One of the most humbling parts about being a pastor at a church this size is we get the statistics and we see what the percentages are in a normal congregation, the kinds of things that people are in. So when we, when we read something that says, you know, at any point there's 20% of people who are having an extramarital affair or at least having an emotional affair with a coworker, or this number of people are addicted to gambling or the high, high, high percentage of men and women who are addicted to pornography. The truth of the matter is that you and I, as fleshly people, some of us have specific plans that we will walk out of these doors today and we already have scheduled appointments to sin. Admit your plans, and I pray that through the power of the Holy Spirit, we amend our plans. I don't know what your, what your temptation is. That when your flesh is screaming, when your sinful side is drawing you, you can't sneak past God. We need one another. The reality is there is this tension for us, and we live in this tension. Jordan was really gracious this morning to share a little bit of our story. This uh, last couple weeks, there's been some moments for me where I was kind of looking for some encouragement. And I keep an encouragement um, file folder from different seasons of life. And as I opened up the Forest Home folder this week, I actually found the letter that Jordan wrote me after that sixth grade summer. And I'll tell you, when I'm having a bad day, Jordan, wherever you are, I'm going to read it again. Because I read this letter from a sixth grade boy who clearly has been anointed by the Spirit to write, because I don't know any sixth grader that can write like that note. But the way he speaks about me, boy, I'm, I'm feeling like Jordan really has experienced the justified Jeff Matisich. Right, there was something in the way that that week of camp worked for Jordan where the redeemed, the new creation, the new self part of Jeff was evident. And he speaks to that. So then we create this relationship. And for the next uh, two or three summers, we think it was three, 
Jordan would come out to Pasadena. I was working here at Lake Avenue, and his mom's incredible. I think Naomi's here. And so he would come do in different, different runs. Every like three weeks, he would live with me, and we would just kind of do life together a couple weeks here, a month there. And I remember specifically around his eighth grade year, we were hanging out at my home after he'd been with me a while. And think of the courage of an eighth grader to look at a youth pastor and to say, hey, Jeff, I'm pretty sure that Christians aren't supposed to speak like you just spoke. So Jordan got a little old self. He had this experience. He experienced the fullness of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, that we have these moments where our new self wins and we are found obedient, where that positional reality isn't just theoretical, but these glimpses and moments of faithfulness and joy and where it's kind of working, but the reality is there's still those moments for all of us. Boy, if you have come to Lake Avenue Church with the idea that, that you've got a bunch of superhero pastors, oh, I just want to break it to you right now. I'm, I'm really sorry. Because <laughs> we're just normal people trying to figure it out. And yeah, there's, we pray for more of these faithful moments than unfaithful moments. And I'm so thankful for what Greg will preach next week from chapter 8. But the reality is that we are caught in this tension between the promise of a new identity and the process of living in this world. And there are moments, brothers and sisters, there are great moments where the things we know we're supposed to do, we do them. And so it's not always the struggle of Paul, what I, what I do, I don't do. And I believe this morning, the way we can end our time together is that we will get an opportunity to not only hear what we are supposed to do, but I believe the Spirit of God will confirm that in your heart and that you and I can leave this place having a moment of faithfulness, following through on something we know we ought to do. And so watch this video. formed at camp don't stop at camp they continue outside they can we're still friends at church we still make jokes with each other we still laugh about what happened but we also make new memories I feel like the best part about getting to know the girls in our cabin was seeing how they're so much different than I am but how we connected over the differences that we have the best part of camp should be Jesus but it was the people because they were all nice and accepting and really just warm to everybody it was more friendly than just kind of getting to know people like at school and stuff because still like in small group you would talk about Jesus with your friends. This was a really great experience. Getting to know the girls in my cabin meant a lot to me because I've always had trouble making friends um, back when I was younger in elementary school. I just always used to be kind of moping around by myself. The best part about camp was being with my new friends and like hanging out with them and like doing braids, eating Skittles. Camp was fun, amazing, and cool. Thing that surprised me about camp was that 
I felt like there were a lot of people there that were just like willing to be friends with anybody like they weren't they wouldn't exclude other people they were willing to walk up to a random person that looked lonely and be hi my name is so and so you want to I don't know go get a soft serve with me or something like that a lot of parents of middle school students think that camps at this church are places for their their children to get away and just like mess around and yeah there is a lot of fun times and playing, but it's also a place where we get to know God better and we get to know ourselves and each other better.